<clears throat> we come to chapter two of this first section, which is uh, seeds, the uh, names and symbols section of the book. And uh, the title of this chapter is Fire, Heat, and Coolness. And it begins with a, a quote from a passage by Richard Gombrich. Uh, he was the president of the Pali Tech Society. He was a professor of uh, Pali and Sanskrit at Oriel College, Oxford. And uh, he writes uh, rather good and readable academic papers, <laughs> which is not always the case with academic papers. And this is a, uh, a, a piece from a, um, a, uh, a collection that's called How Buddhism Began, the Conditioned Genesis of the Early Teachings. And this is an essay called Metaphor, Allegory, and Satire. Summaries of the Buddha's teachings rarely convey how much use he made of simile and metaphor. Many people know that nirvana or nibbana means going out, quote-unquote, like a flame. But probably few of them know, or perhaps even ask themselves, what is going out? The Buddha had a simple urgent message to convey, and was ingenious in finding ever new terms and analogies by which to convey it. The suttas are full of his inventiveness. When he resorted to figurative or other indirect modes of expression, this is called pariyaya, literally a way round, or a way, it is a way of putting things. So the, uh, the fire sermon is called the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, uh, which literally means the way of explaining things in terms of fire. So pariyaya, uh, a way round, or a way of putting things. Over and over again, the Buddha uses the images of heat and fire to indicate the states of dissatisfaction and suffering, dukkha, induced by passion, greed, hatred, and delusion in all their multifarious forms. Similarly, he uses the images of shade and coolness to indicate the state of pure transcendence. It's worth noting that, generally speaking, the Buddha used common household terms and similes to describe even abstruse concepts and qualities. He was not prone to, quote, blinding with science, unquote, as was apparently the custom of many of his contemporaries, but was instead concerned to convey the truth in ways that all interested people could understand. The word Nibbana itself seems to have been in common usage. Achim Buddhadasa, a highly revered contemporary Thai meditation master and scholar, has said that the word was often used in referring to cooking, that once rice had been boiled, one needed to let it nibbana for a while so that it would drop to the right temperature to eat. <laughs> so it's a very ordinary, everyday term. Uh, Ajahn Kusalo was, um, uh, he used to run the, the family programs here many years ago, and he, he was a very creative and productive um, uh, monk and teacher, and he uh, <coughs> created these little sticky labels with a, a Buddha uh, sitting in a fridge with all these icicles hanging down, <laughs> and these little stickers you could sort of put them on your books or your you know your um, on your satchel or your fridge or whatever. Said the nibbana is totally cool. Meditate and chill out. <laughs> so I had that one on, on my notebook for a long time. So. Nibbana is totally cool. Meditate and chill out. 
And that's kind of, a, that's what it means. <laughs> Chill. It's also important, perhaps, to bear in mind that the Buddha taught in India, a land of blazing heat, and in such environments, coolness can easily gather to it an aura of intrinsic goodness and attractiveness. This notwithstanding the quest for tapas, spiritual heat, by Vedic-inspired ascetics, especially through their practices of self-mortification. In the northern regions, where the English language originated, warmth, quote-unquote, takes on a similar aura of desirability. The source of oppression and danger is not the merciless sun, you'll have noticed in England, <laughs> the sun is very rarely merciless, sort of the brutal heat of the English, uh, English sun is not a very common phrase. <laughs> the source of oppression and danger is not the merciless sun, but the chill bitterness of winter. Quote, uh, there's a quote from T.S. Eliot here. Through the dark cold and the empty desolation, as T.S. Eliot has it in East Coca, one of his poems from the Four Quartets. Accordingly, it is useful to take into account one's own conditioning when exploring and considering the terms and images which appear in this book and in Theravada scripture in general. So the point being that uh, in Northern Europe and in these cold countries, the idea of warmth and shelter um, is, uh, has that, that aura of, of goodness and attractiveness. And that uh, so, uh, up until recent times, you know, nowadays you have fresh cherries in January. And <laughs> when I was growing, when I was a lad, <laughs> you, you never saw lettuce till um, April or May. You, you wouldn't never see a tomato or strawberry. You wouldn't see until June. And so we take it for granted we have uh, all different fruits year-round and, and fresh vegetables. But 100 years ago, surviving the winter was the major occupation of most Europeans. That uh, uh, Having food stored up, things pickled and saved. And, uh, and uh, uh, my father's father, my grandfather, who was born in 1863, that he remembers being sewn into his underwear for the winter. I mean, I, I did not meet him. He died in 1930. But, uh, so he was born in 1863, my grandfather. So they'd sew the kids into their underwear. They'd kind of cover them in goose grease and sew them into their underwear for the winter. So you wouldn't go in the bath. I mean, you get wet all over. And it's, it's freezing cold. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have central heating. So um, <clears throat> the, uh, the images of surviving the, the bitter, dark cold of winter and the gladness of spring coming and when there might be some food again and you didn't have to eat pickles and, um, and uh, everything that's been salted. And then uh, you, were, you were glad of that. But uh, the, the images of coolness, Nibbana, come from India. Any of you who ever traveled in India, you know the, the temperatures can be pretty uh, challenging. Some of you born out there in that part of the world. It can be um, a very, very different story. When I was in Varanasi in the hot season, um, and so it's right by the river, river Ganges, so there's not as, as hot as it, it could be, but... Uh, it was in the hot season. It was uh, the temperature was uh, <laughs> was uh, absurdly high. So I had this little traveling clock with a thermometer on it, and I thought I'll just check and see what what the temperature is out in the sunlight. So I, I, at one o'clock in the afternoon, I put my clock out in full sunlight on the windowsill, and it got to 137 degrees and started spasming. 
137. So that's about um, 55 degrees Celsius, 58. And then it started spasming, like the, the light, you know, the numbers kind of flashing on and off. I thought, oh, poor little clock. Okay, okay, okay. That's good enough. Yeah. It did survive, but only, only just. So, um, so I, I think it's in, uh, this point that I'm making here is that uh, we're, we're now in a European context, and so that the coolness doesn't have quite the same automatic attraction as it does in, in India and uh, the, the sort of tropical regions, the equatorial regions, where that's the trying to keep out of, uh, of the heat and, and seeking shade and the, and the kind of bliss of coming in under the shade of a, of a tree with, uh, with um, lots of leaves. <sighs> the, that um, blessed relief is an, you know, automatic, rather like us coming out of the cold and uh, coming into a warm place. Like when I go back into my kuti with my wood-burning stove, Mm. And uh, also when the Buddha is using the term Nibbāna, I think it, it's talking about a very um, uh, sort of intuitive or instinctual sense of attraction. It's, it's not a sophisticated psychological term. It's, it is that, oh, it's a, it is a, a sigh of relief. It's not a, an intellectual explanation. It's a, in my, my feeling for the term. Is, uh, it's describing a, a, a felt sense of, of ease and, um, and goodness. Since Nibbāna is the ultimate goal of Buddhist practice, it's arguable that it should be regarded as the most significant term in the Pali Canon. The Buddha once referred to it as, quote, the supreme noble truth, unquote. That's again from the Dhatu Vibhanga Sutta. It is therefore worthwhile to take a little time to explore this particular pariyaya, to investigate why the Buddha chose this specific term to refer to the culmination of the spiritual life, where the term came from, what connotations it had, and indeed, to follow Professor Gombrich's question, to look at what it is that is, quote, going out, unquote. What is immediately clear is that the term nibbana refers to the realms of heat and coolness, to fire and its quenching. Here are some passages from Tanisro Bhikkhu's writings, including his excellent treatise on Nibbāna called The Mind Like Fire Unbound, which addresses this same area. In The Mind Like Fire Unbound, Tanisro Bhikkhu particularly notes the two contexts in which the Buddha uses the fire analogy and the different points the Buddha draws from that analogy depending on the context. Uh, i.e. whether he's talking to non-Buddhist Brahmins or to his own followers. This first passage comes from The Wings to Awakening. Nibbāna, which literally means the extinguishing of a fire, derives from the way the physics of fire was viewed at the Buddha's time. As fire burned, it was seen as clinging to its fuel in a state of entrapment and agitation. So it's, it's bound, like it's sort of locked into the fuel, like as if it was tied to it or chained to it. When it went out, it let go of its fuel, growing calm and free. Thus, when the Indians of his time saw a fire going out, they did not feel that they were watching extinction. Rather, they were seeing a metaphorical lesson in how freedom could be attained by letting go. 
And it's notable that he uses the word extinction there in the opposite way to Venerable Nyanati Loka. When he, in the de- dictionary definition of Nibbana, it, said, you know, <coughs> it means extinction. But uh, Venerable Tanisaro here is, um, <coughs> is using the word in English a bit more specifically referring to something being dead uh, and uh, having um, ha- that which was alive having, having died, but rather um, it's, uh, it's a completely different a message that's being conveyed, as he says, it's a metaphorical lesson in how freedom can be attained by letting go. And then the next passage is from The Mind Like Fire Unbound. The image of an extinguished fire carried no connotations of annihilation for the early Buddhists. Rather, the aspects of fire that to them had significance for the mind-fire analogy are these. Fire when burning, is in a state of agitation, dependence, attachment, and entrapment, both clinging and being stuck to its sustenance, onto the fuel. Extinguished, it becomes calm, independent, indeterminate, and unattached. It lets go of its sustenance and is released. The same nexus of events applied to the workings of the mind occurs repeatedly in canonical passages describing the attainment of the goal. So it's a very different way of looking at, at fire, and you can think of it as the, the energy, uh, the, so the, just in terms of modern-day physics and chemistry, the, the latent energy that's there in the fuel, say the wood, um, which is sun, you know, sunlight has shone on the, on the earth, and uh, trees have grown up and have... have uh, the, sun, the energy of the sun has been transformed into the, the growing uh, wood and leaves of the, of the tree, and then that energy, then when the fire burns, that energy is released, so that you can say that the potential or the latent energy, the potential energy, is there in the wood, even if the wood is, is cold, the, the, the latent fire is there in the wood, and with the correct conditions, like some paper and some kindling and a, and a match, then that the the fire can be started, the wood can burn, and then the energy that's potential there, that's latent there in the, in the wood, can be released. So that uh, it's saying that um, the, uh, the, the <coughs> quality of fire, say, is speaking about the energy, uh, the, uh, the attribute of energy, and when there's a flame burning, that energy is seen as being in a state of, of agitation, dependence, attachment and entrapment, both clinging and being stuck to its sustenance. It's interesting also that in the I Ching, in the Chinese, um, the, I think it's, there's a Chinese speaker here, the, the Li is the word for fire. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So that means, and it's translated as uh, Li, meaning the fire or clinging, that the two words are interchangeable. So that it's right in the Chinese uh, expression, it's a uh, uh, has the same kind of uh, relationship. It is in the spiritual and cultural context described by the above quoted passages on fire that we should consider the Buddha's choice of terminology when he coined the phrase the three fires for passion, hatred, and delusion, raga, dosa, and moha. Furthermore, he chose these terms very early on in his dispensation traditionally said to be at the time of his third discourse, the fire sermon, the Aditya Pariyaya Sutta. 
Even though in this following passage Richard Gombrich does not make reference to the Vedic notion that fire is latent everywhere, he nonetheless has some very insightful perspectives on the symbolic role of fire in India, particularly from the perspective of the Brahmin priesthood. So I quoted this quite uh, extensively, this, this particular passage. Again, it's from um, How Buddhism Began, the conditioned genesis of the early teachings, because uh, I think he's got some very, very useful insights, particularly into the five khandhas, and, uh, uh, the, which are the rupa, the uh, material form, Vedana, feeling, uh, sanya, perception, sankhara, mental formations or volitional formations, and vijnana, consciousness. Nirvana is part of an extended metaphorical structure which embraces enlightenment and its opposite. What has to go out is the set of three fires, passion or greed, hatred and delusion. According to tradition, the Buddha introduced the concept of these three fires in his third sermon. This sermon is known in English as the fire sermon, but in Pali it is called the Aditta Pariyaya, the way of uh, putting things being uh, sorry, the way of putting things as being on fire. Quote, unquote. The sermon begins with the bald and startling statement, "Everything, O monks, is on fire." The Buddha then explains what he means by everything. It is all our faculties, the five senses plus the mind, their objects and operations, and the feelings they give rise to. All these are on fire with the fires of passion, hatred and delusion. I have shown in an earlier article, Gombrich, 1990, that the fires number three, because the Buddha was alluding to a set of three fires which the Brahmin householder was committed to keeping alight and tending daily, so that they came to symbolize life in the world, life as a family man. This is made crystal clear in a sermon in the Anguttara Book of the Sevens, in which the Buddha first juxtaposes the three sacrificial fires with the fires of passion, hatred and delusion, and then, with the aid of puns, metaphorically reinterprets the former, the eastern fire, ahavanya in Sanskrit, he says stands for one's parents. The western, garhapatya, uh, fire for one's household and dependence. The southern, takshinagni, for holy men, renunciants and brahmins worthy to receive offerings. It is in this sense, he tells a fat brahmin, that a householder should tend the fires by supporting people. Later generations of Buddhists had no reason to be interested in Vedic Brahmins or in the Buddha's debate with them, so the origin of this metaphor was forgotten. So far as I know, it's not to be found in the commentaries. In the Mahayana, the metaphor was so thoroughly forgotten that passion, hatred and delusion came to be known as the three poisons. So it still, it, it still applies as them as being poisonous presences in the mind but the original imagery uh, of them as the three fires and, and them coming from the, the um, standard fire-worshipping model of the Brahmin household it sort of has got lost over the centuries. So, and the Mahayana movement, uh, that began about four or five hundred years after the Buddha's time, so it's, that's a, a long time to have passed by, so it's no wonder that the imagery got, uh, got lost in the, in the ages. Since even the core of the fire metaphor was thus, early, was thus early forgotten by Buddhist tradition, it's not surprising that its extensions were forgotten too. 
The word upadana has both a concrete and an abstract meaning. In the abstract, it means attachment, grasping. In this sense, it is much used in Buddhist dogmatics. Concretely, it means that which fuels this process. The Pali English Dictionary says literally that material substratum by means of which an active process is kept alive and going. Fuel, supply, provision. So when the context deals with the fire, sorry, so when the context deals with fire, it simply means fuel. The five khanda, from form to consciousness, are often referred to in the texts as the upadana khanda, and this is usually translated something like the aggregates of grasping. While not wrong, this translation has lost the metaphor. So that uh, um, uh, you that, that kind of translation is a bit awkward in English, and it's a strange kind of term like the the aggregates of grasping or the the uh, the aggregates of clinging, and. Uh, usually, uh, aggregate means um, some kind of building materials, like you know, the gravel and <laughs> stuff you make concrete with. And so it's a, it's a bit of a weird term, even if English is not your first language. Um, and I, I feel that this is one of the reasons I quoted this passage, was it, I feel it's a, it, it clarifies that term, the upadana khanda. In my opinion, it's clear that the term khanda, too, was part of the fire metaphor. I would trace it back to a small sutta, the sermon about the burden at Sanyutanikaya Khandavaga, sutta number 22. Like most of these short sermons in the Sanyutanikaya, it has no narrative context. The Buddha simply begins by saying, Monks, I shall teach you the burden, the bearer of the burden, the taking up of the burden, and the putting down of the burden. The bhara is, the, is a word for burden. He is expounding a metaphor. The burden, he says, is what we may call the five upadana khanda. He then names the standard five, from matter to consciousness, calling each an upadana khanda. Each is being metaphorically called a bundle of fuel. So khanda, like I said, means a lump or a heap. It can also mean a bundle. It's like a, so like a, a bundle of firewood. Each is being metaphorically called a bundle of fuel. The normal fuel was firewood, and we can, if we like, extend the image to being one of the Brahmin student, the Brahmacharin, one of whose daily duties was to collect the firewood to feed the sacrificial fires. There is a short text a little later in the Sanghitanikaya, at uh, Sutta number 61, which states that the five khanda are on fire, adita, so that one should stop caring for them. I wonder whether this was not the original form of the metaphor of being on fire, quote-unquote. The experiences of the unenlightened are like five bundles of firewood which are on fire. That would make them very uncomfortable to carry. Indeed, I wonder whether these two short texts, Sangyuta, this um, Sutta 22 and Sutta 61, were not originally together. So that is a very uh, helpfully graphic image. I mean, the, the, the aggregates of grasping is a pretty weird term and doesn't sort of give you a mental image. Um, a bundle of firewood that you're trying to carry, you know, five bundles of firewood that you're trying to carry, like one under each arm, one under each shoulder, one on your head, and then they're all burning as well. Like, <laughs> everything's smoking, it's on fire, it's hot, it's kind of, even, even if they weren't burning, it would be, that's that kind of awkwardness. That's, uh, to me, that's like, oh, when I read this, I thought, oh, right, that makes so much sense. Which, of course, could just be my projection, but I think um, that's one of the advantages of 
advantages of people who know their Buddhist languages and know the scriptures very, very thoroughly is that they catch these things that the average reader misses. And so, whereas terms like the, the aggregates of grasping, uh, you think, okay, uh, maybe it's accurate, but I can't, why, why would you call it that? Or what does that mean? Then this imagery of, of uh, the Brahmin, sort of the, the, the Brahmin student, the novice Brahmin, sort of, oh no, the Ajahn wants like five bundles. How am I going to carry all of this? And, and it's on fire. And so the general sort of awkwardness, painfulness, and uh, <coughs> looking forward to not have to carry that para, that, that burden. It all comes together very helpfully in that, that particular kind of image. So Nibbana, putting down the burden, <sighs> dropping all these um, bundles of firewood that uh, you can see is uh, very um, uh, attractive. And going back to, also um, picking up on this point, and going back to Venerable Ananda Maitreya, as I said, he spoke 13 or 14 different languages, and he could speak Sanskrit and Pali and several other Indian languages. Because he was so familiar with, with, uh, with, with Pali, Sanskrit, and, and different Indian languages, he, when he was here in, in, uh, in 1986 and was giving us classes, it was, it was really uh, wonderful and fascinating because he pointed out that many of the translators into English or German or, or European languages of the Pali, they, there was a lot of very obvious puns and similes and allusions that were completely missed because they didn't live in India or they didn't, they didn't know the uh, Indian expressions. And uh, he said, actually, the Pali canon is really funny. <laughs> you, you, you come across sometimes the Buddha makes an obvious pun um, and it's really clear and uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi picks up on quite a lot of those but uh, Venerable Ananda Maitreya was saying you know, that the Pali canon is very, it's very witty the Buddha had a, a really mean wit he was very sharp and, um, and so that there's a lot of little kind of subtle messages that are there in the expressions that the Buddha uses and some of them quite, quite pointed um, and say, say for example, um, that in uh, the sutta called the invitation uh, to a Brahma, invitation of a Brahma, it talks about this Brahma god Baka, who had been a, a teacher of the Buddha in a previous life, and the Buddha recognizes that this Brahma god has formed this conceited view that he thinks he's the creator of the universe, and so the Buddha beams up to this Brahma world to go and visit Baka to help him be freed from this this uh, deluded view he's got. Well, Baka means a heron. It's like the bird with a long beak. And in Indian mythology, uh, a heron is a kind of proud, pompous, and sort of superior. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> got a long nose to look down, you know. I've got a fairly long nose, but herons have even longer noses. Sort of <laughs> look down at the world. And so calling the Brahma god, the, calling the Brahma god a heron, is like immediately giving you the tone. It's like a sort of pompous, <laughs> superior, kind of uh, conceited, inflated character. And then that's exactly the, 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 the kind of personality that the Brahma has in the, in the, um, in the story where uh, <coughs> he says, you know, I am the Almighty, the Omnipotent, the, the, the creator of, of the universe. And then the Buddha says, well, if that's the case, then uh, I shouldn't, uh, <coughs> you should be able to vanish from me and, uh, and I should not be able to see you, so can you do that? And 
the Brahma tries to, to vanish and, and can't disappear. And then the Buddha said, and if you really were the, the, the sort of most uh, powerful being in the universe, uh, I shouldn't be able to vanish from you and you should always be able to see me, right? And so Bhaka says yes. And then the Buddha disappears and Bhaka can't, can't find him. So anyway, that's a different, uh, different story. But that, um, this kind of picking up on these uh, um, uh, sort of hidden messages is a great... A blessing that comes from people who really do know the language very, very well, because you have, um, like my esteemed uh, cousin I. B. Horner, who was the president of the Pali Text Society for thirty or forty years. She was a brilliant and highly respected Pali scholar. But there are things like that that, that just would would slide by because of not having the knowledge of Indian mythology or or, or knowing that uh, oh, in that part of uh, in that part of of. Um, uh, of, uh, of India, sort of in Patna, they still have this expression, you know, such and such, and that uh, that uh, that he would know about where a, a European, a Western scholar wouldn't be aware of. So, any questions or thoughts on that before? Okay. Another influence on the society within which the Buddha was living and teaching, along with the Brahmins and their tending of the fires, was the presence of the summoners. The varieties of wandering yogis and ascetics amongst whom the Buddha counted himself and his disciples. More often than not, he was known by the epithet the Samana Gotama, by those who were not his followers. Along with putting a damper on the Brahmins, encouraging the three fires to be put out rather than tended and kept alive, he also met the principal focus of the yogic tradition of his time head-on and doused their image of the spiritual goal as well. So to douse is to pour water on. So to, like if, I, if there, was a, there was candles burning and I, I poured this water on, that would be dousing the, the candle, dousing the flame with the water. And so there's a few passages here that I quote from various different books. One is um, a very wonderful book called Ka by Roberto Calasso, who's an uh, Italian mythologist. <coughs> and then the other one is from Gita Mehta, uh, who's an Indian writer, a very gifted novelist and writer, uh, from a book called A River Sutra. For rishis, ascetic yogis, the pivotal word was tapas, heat. For the Buddha, it was nirvana, extinction, coolness. Perfect correspondence, poles apart, inversion. In the land they lived in, extinction was thought of as a fire going home, withdrawing into its dark dwelling. Tapas, heat, ardor, from the Indo-European root tap, which, mean, which gives the Latin tepeo. Long translated with a range of terms, austerite, penance, castaion, uh, Ases, brutum. Tapas means at once the cosmic heat and the heat within the mind, that which broods in the sense of incubates, like a, a hen sitting on its eggs, incubating them, a broody hen. Tapas, ascetic heat or ardor, a kind of psychic explosion that leads, in the case of the gods, to the creation of universes, and with humans, to the acquisition of such powers that even the gods tremble before them. Shiva, as the supreme ascetic, sustains the universe through his tapas. 
Through their endurance, the pilgrims hope to generate the heat, the tapas, that links men to the energy of the universe, as the, as the Narmada River is thought to link mankind to the energy of Shiva. So her book, uh, Gita Mehta's book, uh, A River Sutra, is about the Narmada River. The Buddha counted the concept of tapas, heat, as the most desirable spiritual quality, with his extolling of nibbana, coolness. In a single gesture, as with the encouragement to put out the three fires, he thus caught the attention of his listeners through the employment of shock tactics. What an audacious and heretical way to speak! He indicated how his teaching varied from the traditions that they had inherited from elsewhere, and, most importantly, he provided fresh metaphors for the goal of the spiritual life and the path leading to it. Put out the three fires of passion, hatred and delusion, and you will arrive at the utter spiritual plenitude of Nibbana, unshakable and perfect peace. So these are uh, uh, themes that we've come up in the previous few readings, but this is where it's sort of spelled out in more, more detail uh, in, the, in the actual text itself. Having said that, it's also important to recognize that all analogies are partial, and that the Buddha didn't always refer to tapas in a pejorative or negative way. For example, in the Ovada Patimoka, a teaching given to 1250 Arahant disciples, the Buddha's opening words were, patient endurance is the supreme austerity, tapas, kantiparamang tapo titika, is the actual Pali, referring to its central and beneficial role in the spiritual life. Similarly, as it's pointed out uh, in uh, previous passages, in reference to ancient Indian physics, the extinction of a fire could be seen as its release, quote-unquote, and thus carry positive connotations as well. Nevertheless, in common understanding and expressions of the time, the Brahmins and fire worshippers tending their flames, together with the ascetic yogis endeavouring to generate as much psychic heat as possible, form the context within which the Buddha formulated these central metaphors of his teaching. This shift of perspective from fire and heat to coolness is probably best evidenced in the very first and most famous instance that he used such expressions, the fire sermon. So then I quote the whole thing here. So I'll read that out now. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Gaya, at Gaya's head, together with a thousand bhikkhus. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. And uh, this is very shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment. So he had already been he spent the rains retreat in the deer park at Varanasi. Uh, and so the first two traditional discourses, the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel, setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma, and the Anatalakana Sutta on the, the, um, the quality of not-self, those were both given uh, just outside of Varanasi. And, uh, and so then he left there. Interestingly enough, he never seems to have gone back. You never find another sutta in the whole Pali Canon that was given near, in, in Varanasi. And uh, Ajahn Pasano's pet theory was that, well, Varanasi, that's Hindu central. The, the Buddha thought, there's no point trying to teach here. It's like going to the Vatican and trying to teach Buddhism. You know? <laughs> so he went to, he found his companions in the deer park at Saranath outside of Varanasi. But uh, after that, that one rains retreat that they spent there together, he never went back. So it's like, okay. <laughs> he, he, he chose his, uh, his uh, audience uh, where, where his teaching was going to be effective. So 
he uh, he left Varanasi and then went wandering, and then it said that he met these um, three brothers, the Kasapa brothers, who were um, spiritual teachers, were very influential in that area. Um, and uh, one had 500 disciples, one had 200, one had uh, one had 300, one had 200, and so these thousand bhikkhus that were were traveling with the Buddha were mostly the 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 former fire worshipping. Um, uh, disciples of uh, the three Kasapa brothers. So they, they, had, they were meditators and yogis, and they had the, um, these ritual fires they kept burning and was part of their, their spiritual practice. And there's a long account in the Mahavaga, one of the books of the, the Vinaya discipline, that describes the Buddha's encounter with the Kasapas and then eventually them uh, giving rise to, uh, to faith and, and asking for the, the Buddha to be their teacher. And they throw all of their their fire-worshipping gear and they cut off all their dreadlocks and throw all their fire-worshipping gear into the, into the river. And so he's travelling through the countryside with this group of a, a thousand former fire-worshippers so that uh, that's one of the reasons why the, the theme of, of fire is um, uh, as a, um, present in this particular teaching. It's also in, in the commentary to this, it said that as they were walking along, they saw a, a forest fire that was burning uh, 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 nearby in the countryside. And they saw the, uh, the, the you know, flames and the smoke rising up, and then that was the occasion for the Buddha to start speaking. In the... Um, uh, in the actual sutta the, in Vinaya, there's no indication that there was a forest fire, but the commentaries always like to say, well, actually, there was a forest fire. So that's why he started talking about fire. But the the fact is that um, certainly they had been uh, fire-worshipping ascetics before, and that was uh, uh, like a, a main theme for uh, for their um, their practice and keeping the fires going and also the development of, of tapas and so on, so that then... This teaching is very much um, uh, the Buddha presenting the whole role and imagery of fire in a completely different way to what they are, uh, what they have been used to, and what, what they are, say, conditioned to, to to thinking about it. So there, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus: "Bhikkhus, all is burning, and what bhikkhus is the all that is burning? The eye is burning, forms are burning, eye consciousness is burning." Eye contact is burning, and whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of passion, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion. Burning with birth, aging and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, I say. The ear is burning, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind is burning. So repeating the same pattern for, as it was with the, the eye. Whatever feeling arises with mind conduct as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of passion, the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion. Burning with birth, aging and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, I say. Seeing thus, bhikkhus, the wise noble disciple experiences disenchantment towards the eye, towards forms, towards eye consciousness towards eye contact, towards whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, experiences disenchantment towards the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, towards the mind. So too, um, as with the eye, towards whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, experiencing disenchantment 
they become dispassionate. Through dispassion the heart is liberated. When it is liberated there comes the knowledge it is liberated. They understand. Birth is finished. The holy life has been lived out. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming into any state of being. This is what the Blessed One said. Inspired, those bhikkhus delighted in the Blessed One's words. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of those thousand bhikkhus were liberated from the outflows, the asura, through not clinging. So they all became arahants. The whole teaching here hinges upon two simple words. Seeing thus, evang pasang. Given sufficient clarity of vision, that is, insight into the true nature of things, the fires of passion, hatred and delusion can be completely cooled and extinguished. By the way, the word uh, passion here is raga. So uh, our English word rage is connected to raga. So, um, at, uh, so often um, the, the three are listed as greed, hatred and delusion, but in this original instance it's raga, dosa and moha. So dosa and moha are the same as the usual, but uh, greed has somehow somewhat been substituted for raga over the years and in other, other suttas, but uh, in this particular instance it's raga, raga, dosa and moha. It's also important to keep in mind the, quote, Indian view, unquote, of a fire going out. Whereas for the occidentally conditioned mind, the Western mind, an extinguished fire might imply death and darkness, in the spiritual culture of the Buddha's India, the fires of passion, hatred and delusion going out would reveal the presence of the Dhamma, characterized by purity, radiance and peacefulness. So that's a, a, an, in, a, an important point, I feel. So you have this, this juxtaposition of um, <coughs> heat and coolness, so, that, so heat being um, uh, replaced by the aspiration towards coolness, and then fire being replaced by light. You have a, a diff, the, the energy that's going out into fire and limitation and entrapment and clinging, that, that same energy is being transmuted through, uh, the, through insight to, uh, to light. So you have this, this uh, pairing of heat, uh, fire and, uh, sorry, sorry, heat and coolness as one pair and fire and light as the other pair. So that there's a, uh, a kind of shifting of, of images. And so, as I was saying through the, the Dhammachaka Sutta, you have these images of light, like Chakung Udapadi, vision arose, Jnanang Udapadi, knowledge arose, Panya Udapadi, uh, wisdom arose, uh, uh, Vicha, uh, knowing arose, Aloka, light arose. So there are these images of, of seeing, of light, of knowing. And so that uh, you have this, um, rather than fire and heat, you have coolness and light as a sort of abiding images that the Buddha's putting across as the sort of the flavor of, of the Dhamma. There's this, this quality of seeing clearly, knowing, understanding, and the qualities of coolness. So rather than fire and heat, you have uh, light and coolness. Not only is the fire sermon of great significance because of the extinguishing of the three fires by the power of wisdom, but it's also accorded great weight by virtue of the fact that during its delivery, all 1,000 listeners were enlightened. Even if the reader doubts the historical veracity of such claims, like a thousand people all became arahants on one 15-minute talk. 
That's how long, about how long it takes to recite the whole thing. It's about 15 minutes. A thousand people became arahants hearing one 15-minute Dhamma talk. <clears throat> it is nevertheless significant that this is the highest number of people to be liberated through the hearing of a single discourse of the Buddha as recorded in the scriptures. The event is thereby charged with an added measure of renown. Not that there was a kind of, the Buddha wasn't keeping a tally. Oh, a thousand in one shot. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> it was a successful Dhamma talk. Okay. He wasn't keeping a tally, you know, I, I doubt very much. But uh, even mythologically, like, that's the, the, the sutta that has the biggest sort of impact in terms of liberation of beings from, from delusion. So it carries a weight, even if it's a, a mythological, just, it's, it's just a story, the, the story itself that, that carries that, um, I say, uh, um, that's, that strength uh, of meaning and value. And that, uh, that as I said, it, it hinges all on that seeing thus, so that when that, uh, that burningness of the, the, uh, the, the mind's, um, say, relationship to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the, and the mental world of emotions and feelings. That this was uh, the, um, that when that is seen, evang pasang, seeing thus, then the wise noble disciple uh, experiences disenchantment towards the eye. So that's a lot that hinges on that seeing thus, right? <laughs> that if that is really seen, then the disenchantment, and that's... Uh, the, the word there is nibindati or nibita, nibindati. And when we, we chant the, the fire sermon, you'll notice in the second half of it, nibindati, nibindati, nibindati. So it's a cooling down, cooling down, cooling down, cooling down. So that disenchantment is nibindati. So it's like the that same, the attitude becomes cool in relationship to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, cool in relationship to the yeah, emotions. So uh, as we know, um, uh, we might experience the burning, but not get to the disenchantment. <laughs> that uh, it's more common. Our, our usual experience is plenty of burning, and not a lot of coolness. Um, but the the people who were listening to the Buddha were also uh, very experienced meditators and people who are spiritually ripe. They also had the good karma to have drawn close to the to the Buddha and been uh, in India and and practicing meditation and uh, living a spiritual life in the time of the Buddha. So they had quite a, a substantial sort of pre-preparation, uh, uh, sort of pre-loaded. Uh, they were, they were um, pre-prepared so that uh, it was not just uh, a thousand strangers off the street in Hemel Hempstead. Pataliputta. You know. <laughs> <laughs> These were spiritually ripe people. You know, so sort of just add hot water and serve, just... And, uh, uh, so that, uh, uh, but it, it's a a, a a very significant and uh, important suitor in that respect. So I'll pause there. Any have anyone has any questions or thoughts? Yes, Alan. Uh, fire washing, how it was just a ritual, uh, it 
<laughs> I don't know a lot. I mean, it's a good question. Um, as it is said, that you know, the the part of the mythology, Indian mythology, is very, very vast and multifaceted. But as it's, as that passage from Gita Meta in the, in the book, the River Sutra, talks about that, that uh, Lord Shiva's ascetic practice was the, like a sustaining power of the universe because of his uh, his asceticism that that provides the energy that that maintains the universe. And then I think the uh, in terms of the Brahmins um, keeping the fires going, I think we, that came up in a, a question or a comment the other day um, that the uh, in order to sustain the, uh, the the order of things, then they kept the fires going, like in that uh, that sutra that um, uh, the the uh, that Richard Gombrich quotes that the the Buddha takes those. Um, the fires that the Brahmins are supposed to uh, sustain, the, the three fires that they're supposed to sustain in their in their household, to they're kind of propitiating the gods. It's like an offering that they're they're, um, they're pleasing the gods that are protecting the different aspects of uh, of their their life with. And if you let the fire go out, then it's like the gods won't be pleased, or the the world will fall apart. And that's still the the a practice. I mean, in India, you still have Fire worship. Actually, where I was staying in Varanasi was right above the Dasashvamid Ghat, where they have the fire pujas all the time. Well, not all the time, but you know, it's like right there on the on the the Ghat beside the um, the Ganges. That's like the main um, sort, of, uh, <coughs> sort of ceremonial area. It was right outside where I was staying, and so that that's that's uh, whether that has genuine magical power or genuine influence you'd have to discuss with the Brahmin <laughs> but uh, certainly that that's that um, those beliefs were uh, were part of the Indian mythological landscape and that uh, and uh, and very much today there's certain societies where you know there's that the tribal societies where a fire is kept going is never allowed to go out that you and then when a if a, if the village if the people have to move from a certain area, they will carry the fire with them in a like in a clay pot or a, a metal pot. They'll, they'll carry the fire with them, and then the first thing they do when they get to a new site is to establish the 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 fire and uh, and to sort of reignite that because that's the the life of the village. That's my vague memories of, of some of those kind of um, traditions. In Jewish tradition, you have that also, you know, the, what is the, <coughs> um, on Christmas. Hanukkah. Yeah. You, uh, you keep the, the candles burning. Yeah, so that is from from a time when they didn't have, they had the holy fire in, mm-hmm. in the temple. Yes. Representing the presence of God. And then when they didn't have fireworks, it was a God, catastrophe. So... Uh, That's right. They ran out of oil, and but the the the, the yeah. candles kept burning when the oil had run out. So they, they ran out of fuel nearly, mm-hmm. and then they sent out people to to bring fuel, and uh, somehow that didn't work for some reason. And so uh, then eventually one came back, a second candle. So then the first one candle, then the second candle, and then the eighth candle. Is <laughs> now you have the bundles. So the eggs is the last one. Mm-hmm. So you have these, these tender ones with eight candles. And then 
The one. Happy. I think it's a very primordial from our earliest human societies, you know, when we were, because for all of us, you know, you just scratch the skin and we're all hunter gatherers, you know, the sort of civil, what we call civilized society that's only just like the, the last sort of half of a percent of our, our time as a human society. You have a couple of hundred thousand years of being hunter gatherers and you know, wandering and living in little um, village type settlements, and it's only the last. 20,000 years that we've had a settled society, so that uh, that um, the role of the fire, keeping away the dangerous predators, um, difficulty of starting a fire when the fire's gone out. Like, you, know, you let the fire go out. <laughs> How are we supposed to cook the food when the wood's wet? You know, so that just the, the ordinary practical necessities of safety, keeping the wild animals at bay. Uh, keeping warm, um, preparing food and such like is keeping the fire going is gathers a, a, an important strength and then different uh, mythologies, different deities that come in and sort of uh, become a part of that get get at, uh, sort of arisen over the the many millennia but um, I think that's that as a human society when when fire first got uh, domesticated, then that was a, became a huge central part of our, our living together as a human families. There's, an, <coughs> sorry, there's an article about the um, significance of fire in the Vedas and the creation myth in the Journal of the Pali Tech Society by Joanna Jurovitz, which explores that sort of things. If you're interested in that kind of thing, it's a good article. Yes. You can fish it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I'm a fire type of person. Do you think this kind of person ha uh, has some difficulties reaching towards coolness nibbana? Like I don't quite believe like a, a five elements type of person characteristic or something like that, but. Uh, he says I am fire type, <laughs> and I agree that I am really kind of short tempered and kind of volatile. Or like a, when I like something, I really like it. When I don't like it, I really don't like it. So can you give us some advice for a type, a fire type? <laughs> 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 I, I'm I'm feeling a little bit guilty because. <laughs> Talking about the fire all the time. <laughs> well, but sometimes it's it, that very obviousness. It makes it a, a spiritually valuable entry point. It makes it because it, it's very strong. Then it's like you can't ignore it or brush it aside. So you have to sort of meet it face to face. So sometimes that uh, <coughs> that kind of intensity of a particular issue or aspect. Can be something that helps us to, to develop great strengths. Like Ajahn Chah was a very fiery type, you know. He he, uh, he um, and talks about his own um, his own spiritual background. You know, and there was um, sometimes people would ask him, and they say, "Lumpur, it's just amazing. You have such 
good advice to give to everybody in every situation you seem to be able to have an answer for, for every particular aspect of difficulty people have in their family life or their working life or their health or their meditation yeah. you must have studied a, a huge amount of Abhidhamma you must know the suttas back to front to, to have acquired all this knowledge and, uh, and he'd say when someone said something like that to him he'd say no <laughs> uh, it's because I've had a lot of defilements if I have any wisdom, it's because I had a lot of, of defilements to deal with. So, out of the standard five hindrances, so he was very angry. He had a lot of dosa. Uh, he was incredibly restless. He was very lustful, and and filled with doubt. The only one he didn't specialize in was dullness. <laughs> <laughs> so, he had similarly uh, a lot of that kind of. You know, energy in his system but the, uh, he uh, frequently would say uh, don't, don't begrudge that kind of um, heat or the friction that comes from um, uh, the dealing with the defilements because that's exactly the kind of friction that helps your wisdom to become really keen, really sharp and uh, <clears throat> so that it, we, part of us might think well wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have all this stuff to deal with and uh, if only my mind was peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> Lumpo Cha, he kind of met that. Uh, he, he acknowledged that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't contradict the Metta Sutta. <laughs> but he also saw for himself that the need to deal with this sort of raging uh, uh, restlessness and anger and lust, that he, he'd learned a lot of very, very important lessons through through meeting that and using that that kind of heat in his system and uh, there was a, a a very often um quoted encounter between him and uh uh Lumpur Sumedha when in 1981 Chidas monastery just opened up in 79 Ajahn Chah had been there when they they uh, they moved into the new place and and so uh, a couple of years later Lumpur Sumedha went back to visit Thailand and, and so uh, Ajahn Chah said, uh, so, Sumedho, how's it going? And he said, oh, it's amazing. It's incredible. I've never lived with such an inspiring group of people. You know, the monks and nuns, they're really committed and diligent, and you know, they get along really well together. And, uh, you know, it's just the most uh, impressive group of people I've, uh, I've ever lived with. Yeah, everyone is really just so, um, so uh, say, diligent and thoughtful and, and uh, committed to the practice. And they sort of... Waxing lyrically, as they say, in that, uh, getting getting into that that, that mode, and, and then after he pauses for breath, Ajahn Chah just said, ah. <laughs> probably about an octave lower than that. Ah. <laughs> you won't develop much wisdom living with that lot. It's just immediately just like that's a total waste of time, because he could see how Ajahn Sumedha was. Like, isn't this great? All these people who don't cause me problems, you know, who who are really keen on practice and and uh, and, and get on with each other. Uh, how great! And uh, so, Lumpur Chow was always <laughs> able to see a big, bigger picture and saw that well, Sumedho is is investing in uh, in uh, in tranquility, <laughs> and that uh, he's not seeing that the. the the advantage that can come from having to deal with difficulties. I don't think he 
he promised to send any difficult people, but they, they showed up anyway. <laughs> there were plenty of challenges that, that rose up for, for Lumpur Sumedho in the, in, the, in the coming years, but uh, um, I there was, it was interesting that was automatic response, was that you won't develop much wisdom that way. And uh, the, the, in a way, the spirit of the Dutanga life, uh, the, you know, the Dutanga practice, the forest tradition, is deliberately creating that kind of friction. So the, 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 the ascetic practices that, that we are allowed, um, eating one meal a day, um, uh, say, um, only, uh, only living on the food that you get on the arms round, uh, just using the three robes and nothing else, uh, sleeping at the foot of a tree rather than in a building, not lying down to sleep at night. Um, you know, these kind of things, they're all going at food, sleep, private space, you know, personal space. Uh, they're, they're going right at the reptile brain. You know. <laughs> they are, they're challenging those urges towards comfort, food, shelter, um, <clears throat> personal security. And they're challenging that. that uh, and so that it's like a deliberate uh, creation of friction. So that you're challenging those. Yeah, but 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 I. Uh, <coughs> I really would like, uh, you know, uh, some more food. You know, when you you go on arms round to say Berkhamsted, and you've been standing there for forty minutes, and no one's offered you anything, you start to sort of the eye starts to scan the street. Oh, she looks likely. Like, she looks. She looks generous. She's coming this way. And, <laughs> and that, uh, no, 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 no. Just eyes down. Eyes down. Eyes down. Yeah. Oh look! He, oh, he's coming! He's crossing the street! He's crossing the street! He's crossing the street! He's got a bag! He's got a bag! And you notice, say, oh well, if I wasn't hungry and standing here with an empty bowl, I wouldn't be noticing people in terms of what they're carrying or how generous they look. But because I'm hungry and I've got an empty bowl, my mind is perceiving people in a different way. Look at that! Aha! So that aha is the point of the whole thing. It's like, oh, look at that. The mind starts to, to shape the world in a different way because of hunger. So you're, you're, you're using that fire, that, that friction of readiness to experience a little bit of hunger or physical discomfort, uh, inconvenience, not having your own personal space to, to, to rest in. And uh, you're, you're using that kind of grating against your own personal preferences to, to help wake up, to challenge those, those deep kind of attachments. So I would encourage you not to look at your fiery characteristics as a, an obstacle, but rather opportunity. So I see uh, the uh, clock has gone round to five past seven, so we'll call it quits there for this evening.